We're in the final week of our preaching series. Uh, we've been looking at Paul's missionary journeys and the idea being that nothing like a long, crowded summer road trip uh, to force us out of our comfort zones, to stretch our faith, stretch our love for other people, um, and discover a little bit more about who we are and who we might become, right? And what we're willing to endure, change, learn, or risk for God's kingdom. And we looked at this last week. This is exactly what happened to Paul. He went out. He had one job. He had one task, one goal. But God had additional tasks and goals and things for him to do. Um, so they had to do a lot. Paul and his companions, they endured hardship. They, they basically had to change their fundamental understanding of God and how he operates in their world. They had a certain understanding that it was God loves the Jews and, and dismisses everyone else, but they had a lot to learn about their heavenly father. Um, they had to learn foreign cultures, and, and they took tremendous risk, and, and we've been looking at some of those risks um, in the second message of our series, we recognize three things, always at play, always at work in the background. Um, and they still play key roles today for the missionary life or anybody thinking about sharing Christ. Um, the church has a significant, crucial role to play. The church is disciples and sends and then receives back and, and disciples and, and resends. That, that's what the church does. This is, this is our task. We have a very significant role to play. And then last week, we looked at this idea that discipleship, well, even before discipleship, salvation sometimes takes a little bit of time, sometimes takes several different people to move somebody to that point where the Spirit has prepared them to receive, right, to receive Jesus as their king at that we have to be patient sometimes. Um, and then particularly in discipleship, it always, always takes time and lots of people all doing their part to properly disciple each other. Not always you discipling others, but would you allow somebody to disciple you? That's, that's difficult sometimes when you get to reach a point where you think, you know, I, I kind of got it figured out and I don't need any more facts. I, I got all the ones I need. I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> Today we're going to look at this third truth, dig a little bit deeper. Suffering and opposition is to be expected. Um, if you recall the second title of our, our message series, the second message, it was finding common ground, right? We looked at this idea of, uh, of looking for being, being flexible right, with non-essentials, uh, being sensitive to personal conscience of our friends, family, people we meet, and just being more curious than judgmental, right, with, with cultural differences. But this morning, we're, we're going to look at what happens when you truly find no common ground. I know I preached an entire series, find common ground. Find, what happens if you don't find common ground? There simply isn't any to be found, right? When you see somebody big physically abusing somebody smaller, and you can fill in the blanks big and small, however way you want there. Whether fear stops you in your tracks and you do absolutely nothing or you go full-on beast mode on the abuser, um, there is no common ground in that moment, right? What that person is doing and what you believe to be true and right and proper way to behave, there's no common ground. Silence isn't always compliance. I know I hear that a lot. But if we're perfectly honest, sometimes you've got your kids with you, and it's probably pretty wise to keep your mouth shut. Right? I've thought about saying some's driving. I don't do that anymore. I don't want to get shot, right? And I, I know they don't have Jesus. I, I watch them drive, and I know they don't have Jesus in their lives. So, you know, when we're hurt, 
we're robbed, we're tricked, or when we see somebody we love hurt, robbed, or tricked, there, there is no common ground in that moment, right? You just respond. When two armies face each other in battle, right, they don't share the ground, right? One army holds the ground, the other doesn't, which explains the power. You've all heard this story of the unauthorized Christmas Day truce in World War II across the trenches. So it made that all the more powerful because armies don't share ground. That's, that's just not what they do. There is no common ground in a war. And again, if you're the one who killed his father, there is no common ground in his own words. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. No common ground in that situation. And many times, as we're going to find today, the gospel can be countercultural. Right, which many times unintentionally, it's not like we're going out and uh, let's have a battle. Sometimes unintentionally, we, the gospel is confrontational, right? Because it is countercultural. The word gospel means good news, but sometimes the good news is bad news, right? When believing and taking to heart, the gospel can change society, but not all society is going to be happy with those changes at all, and they're going to fight back. This morning, I want to look at two confrontations. Um, but this time, it wasn't with the Jewish population, right? The last couple of weeks, almost all the problems have come from the Jews, a little territorialism, a little rivalry, you know, whatever is going on there. You know, Paul had to deal with that in nearly every single city that he went. But today, we're going to look at two incidences where the Jews really weren't involved, played a very, very peripheral role. Um, this is where the gospel enters Gent the Gentile world. Right, the Jews and, the, and the, this new way of being Jewish is really what was going on. There was common ground, right? They, they had family, friends, they had common language, common history, common Bible, Holy Scriptures, lots in common. But as these new Christians got into Gentile territory where there was no common ground, things got confrontational, not on purpose. Again, Paul wasn't going out, let's start a culture war. That wasn't his deal. He just wanted to see people, he wanted to see his people saved. The first con con uh, confrontation is in the city of Philippi. It's on Paul's second adventure up on top of the Aegean Sea there. And then the second one, we're going to look at the second one, happens in Ephesus on his third journey. Um, so we're going to jump in in Acts chapter 16. This is during his first, or excuse me, his second journey. Um, and he's at the city of Philippi, which is a Roman colony, okay? Acts chapter 16, verse 16, it starts, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling, right? Literally, she was a, a pythos. It was the, the cult of Python, uh, this this serpent that helped people read the future and you know, do things like that. And um, in the ancient world, this is this kind of strange, we, we just kind of got to accept this. If you were normally female, sometimes male, but if you had some mental issues, if you had any emotional issues, the ancients kind of looked up to you just a little bit, right? It was their, their opinion that the gods had switched out your mind for their mind, right? Which means that the rest of us can't fully understand it, but it's more advanced than our mind. So people, again, who were out there, 
the ancient world kind of stood in awe of them like, ooh, the gods have been with this one, right? And this is kind of, and, and it led to a lot of abuse, right? Tons of abuse. And what would happen is, is unscrupulous men, women, whatever, would use these women who had these issues to their own advantage. Um, a key was, and this is crazy as I'm reading this, read it across several different sources, ventriloquism. <laughs> That's a tough word. Um, this is what was going on in many of these cases. The men, or they would get the slave girl or the, the oracle, the, the person, um, to say what the, the owners knew the people wanted to hear. And so there was a lot of money to be made. And this is exactly what these guys were doing. They were making money off this girl's misfortune. That's basically what was going on here. Continuing in verses 17 and 18, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Now I want to make super, super clear. She is not evangelizing and she's not sharing Jesus, right? It appears that way. And that's the problem is that it did appear that way. Listen, most high God, the Jews didn't have a corner on that market. Everybody called their God, the most high God. So she is not going, Yahweh, this Paul, he follows the one true God. No, not at all. And you notice Luke is very careful about the way he writes the way, and really in the Greek it is a way, and he does this by not capitalizing. In a couple more verses you're going to see that he does capitalize the way because there's the way of Jesus and there's the world's way. And this, is, this girl was confusing people. Right after a few days, Paul knew people were going to be confused. Who's Yahweh and who's Jesus? Because she's using two phrases, right, that can kind of be played with and go either way. So finally, Paul's had enough, right? He finally reacts. Verse 18, finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now notice there's no mention of the spirit being evil or unclean or as tormenting the poor girl. Um, but again, because of the girl's condition, it, we can call it a healing. We can call it an exorcism, whatever you want. It both, I think, work. We don't know exactly what happened. Um, but the good news was that the girl was well again. Bottom line, whatever was going on there, she was healed. That's good news. But it was bad news for the owners, right? And, well... Paul and Silas too, as we're going to find out. Verse 19 says, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Marketplace this is where official stuff happened to face the authorities where they were promptly stripped of their outer clothing, beaten, and imprisoned. Right? They didn't get to say a word. Why? Because there was no common ground to be found. What Paul and Silas were preaching didn't fit in a Greek city, there, there, were, there were problems. There, there was, it was a poor match. It was a poor match. There is no common ground between the gospel and the owner's exploitation of the slave girl. There simply wasn't any common ground. Kind of a little side thing. The gospel always challenges systems of oppression and systems of brokenness. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. Again, I, I just... This is just a list. I saw the phrase, it clicked in my head, and I just, just made a list of systems of, of oppression and brokenness. You can add some names. You might not like some of the words on the list, but it's, it's just a list, so don't make a big deal of the list. 
But these really are systems of oppression and brokenness, with few exceptions. Now, this is the weird thing. With a few exceptions, Paul isn't portrayed as going after any of these systems of oppression and brokenness as, I, as I've defined them. Rather, in the course of bringing healing and freedom to people, these systems come out of the darkness and attack. Right? He was dealing with the individual, the victim of these systems. That was his first priority, number one priority, is how do we get this person out of that? How do we heal them and give them freedom? That, that was his concern. And the consequences were, well, those systems stood up and, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't do that here. And again, what Paul did or didn't do um, is descriptive. Acts is describing. Acts isn't telling us how to do, how to deal with these systems of oppression and brokenness. Um, some people are called to that rather large task. William Wilberforce, British politician that ended British slavery when it existed across the entire globe. Other names go on. Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Cesar Chavez, Miguel Hidalgo, Susan B. Anthony, Ida B. Wells, Mary Stanton, Katie. All of these people, they were called, as far as I can see, to end these systems. But some of us, well, let me change that. All of us, all of us are called to help and address and redeem the victims of these systems of oppression and brokenness. Again, we might not be called to end them, but we are called to address the victims of these systems. The second confrontation I want to show you happens in Ephesus. I'm going to pick up in Acts chapter 19. And, and again, continue to watch the, these themes play out here. About that time, this is verse 23 and 24, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now you see how Luke has made very, very clear there's the way, Jesus, and there's ways, right? Little w, big W here. This is an interpreter helping Luke in what he needed to do. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines at Artemis, or of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Ephesus was a city of Artemis worship. Right, their temple, if you've ever seen the, uh, the Parthenon in Greece, pretty impressive structure. Apparently, this temple's four times that size. I mean, this was awe-inspiring, huge. And again, Artemis was worshipped throughout the Greek world, but this was like headquarters, right? This, this is where you met with the, the high priests of that, of that religion, and, and this is where stuff happened in the city of, of Ephesus. So the, the whole city is kind of built off that business, I guess you would call it. Lots of silver idols, lots of paraphernalia made and sold there. And Paul's preaching against the idols was impacting their business. Verse 25, he called them all together, all the, the, the workers in this trade of the worship of Artemis. He calls them all together along with the workers in the related trades and said, look, you know, my friends, that we receive a pretty good income from this business. We receive a pretty good income from religion. It's strange. Um, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of a little, little hyperbole, a little exaggeration there, get the crowd worked up. Um, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Right? And you just see the infusion. What? 
what? What have we what? And, and, and the smart ones in the crowd, the ones who are listening to God's spirit, they're going, he's right. I'm not buying any of this garbage anymore. I'm going to melt it down and make earrings. Well, then I'm going to yell out for jewelry, but I'm going to make something. I, I'm going to do something here. Keep reading. Verses 27, verse 27, excuse me. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Does anybody think for even a moment that that is really the concern of Demetrius and his workers? No, right? This is basic greed disguised as patriotism and religious zeal, right? It's very easy to see through. It's, oh my goodness gracious. And once again, the good news isn't good news for everyone, right? Because there is no common ground in this situation between the gospel and exploiting people's either patriotic or religious sensibilities, right? And people do that. They prey on us. They prey on each other. So when there's no common ground, things get confrontational, right? We, we know this. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the... And this is kind of like a chant, right? The idea of the chant is get the whole crowd going and, 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 and the gods notice and show up, right? We, across all faiths, we would kind of do this, you know, get going in the chant, get everybody worked up. And th this is what they're doing. They're getting the crowd all worked up. Soon the, the whole city's in an uproar. The people seize Gaius and Aristarchus, and Paul's, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and they all rush them into the theater together, again, in the theater where things were going to happen, right? This is part of the marketplace, right off the side of the marketplace, big, long, straight road, the Appian Way, right straight to it, can't miss it. Verses 30 and 31, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, right? He had been making friends in high places. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. So he doesn't. I, I don't know if he wanted to, if he felt, well, I'm going to risk my life because, you know, I, I, I don't, we, we don't know. He, he didn't. Let me keep reading 32. This is, this is the amazing part. This, this is the assembly was in confusion. And, and, and would you leave that slide up for just a moment and, and let the verbiage kind of sit on you for a moment. There's something very, very strongly being portrayed here. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one things. Others were shouting other things. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there, right? This is just a picture of chaos, and here's the thing I want you to catch. Well, let me, let me tell you what happens. Then a guy named Alexander stands up and tries to tell the crowd, right, the Christians, they're Jews over here. We're not them. Um, we're, not, we're not part of that crowd, right? We're the good people. And, and obviously the crowd, both the Jews and the Christians, are like, ah, you're all the same. We, we don't see any difference. And so they, start, they, they begin to shout again for like two hours, great is Artemis, great is our God Artemis. And just, just that, that chant was going and going for two solid hours. I mean, it, it, was, it was nutty. But again, here's the thing to catch. Up until this passage, up until this very passage, verses 32, and then it's going to happen two more times uh, let me see. It's going to be happening in verses 39 and 42. If you've got your Bibles, check this out. Up until this passage, he's con 
consistently, Luke, as the writer of the book of Acts, consistently used the Greek term for the Hebrew word for the assembly of God's people. Ecclesia is a good word, right? You want to be a part of ecclesia. Now, he could have chosen a whole lot of words, right? Unruly crowd, crazy crowd. I mean, he could, there, there's a whole lot of Greek words, but he chose, commentators believe for a reason, he chose to use the exact same word that he had been 19 times already. 19 times he'd already been using this word to explain, to, to describe this. And then he uses that same word to describe the unruly, chaotic, confused, clueless rabble. He wants us to see something here, I think. There's two different ways of handling situations in which we find no common ground. And, and, and y'all watch the news. You, you see right away, well, well, they chose that route. Or, or they chose the other route. This is, I think, what Luke wants us to see in this passage, right? When one ecclesia finds no common ground, they riot. But when another ecclesia finds no common ground, they redeem. Boy, those are two radically different Response: One is filled with hate, greed, selfishness, and the other is self-sacrifice. Maybe a lack of certainty. Because sometimes the only common ground is that people need Jesus. So instead of rioting, I, I sometimes wonder as, as the church... Let me, let me back up a step. Timothy Keller, some of you guys might have heard of that name, Presbyterian Church, Redeemer Church in uh, New York City, passed recently from cancer. Read an article he wrote one time, and he said that God's Word is pretty clear. There are certain things that are bad. And in fact, when you, if you look back on that list of systems of oppression and brokenness, you'll see a lot of that stuff. Just these aren't good things. These, these are bad things. And the Bible is super clear, right? There's, there's no question. These, these things need to be addressed. But what the Bible is strangely silent on is how. How do we address these things? Will it be prayer only, or are we going to call for a boycott? All right, be writing letters. Will there be protests? Or will it be spirit-led conversations? Right? In, in every situation, again, the Bible doesn't tell us how to do it. And he calls, I believe, Jesus Christ calls the body together and asks us to, okay, how are we going to address this one in which we found a victim? Let's put our heads together. Let's not go off on Facebook saying silly things and, and spewing hatred. And Let's come together. Let's discuss this stuff. Let's pray over it. Decide on a good course of action. I, I really believe that when we do that, God's Spirit is behind us. Sometimes even with, I truly believe this, sometimes even when what we have decided isn't the best, I think God honors our unity and our hearts and basically says, yeah, I'll, I'll work with that. It's, it's not the best. I, I have a much better idea, but hey, right, I, I'll work with you all on this one. This is the best you all come up with. I'm going to work with you on this. I'm going to make it happen right? That's what God does. 
And always, always, always keeping in mind in the background of all, again, all Paul's missionary adventures and all of our evangelistic efforts, suffering on, and opposition is to be expected. Right? It, it, it's going to be there. When it arrives, you didn't do wrong. You didn't misread the Spirit. You are supposed to be there because opposition and suffering is to be expected when we share the gospel. Right? When we redeem people from darkness. Right? We, again, we might not be called to dismantle these systems per se, but we are called to redeem the victims of these systems whenever and wherever we find them. If you help a victim of domestic abuse, the abuser will be angry with you, right? You know that. If you bring a friend to Jesus, but their spouse or their family and their friends, they refuse Jesus, those family, that spouse, those friends, they're going to hate you. Even if you gently, ever so gently, because they are your good friend, if you ever, ever, ever so gently suggest to a friend a better lifestyle choice, they're not going to be loving you at that moment, right? They are going to be upset when you pointedly, pointedly don't participate in after work, and I'll just use the word hijinks, whatever it involves, right? The rest of your coworkers, they're not going to be singing your praises, they're just, they're not. In fact, Jesus reminded the disciples of this right before he was portrayed. This is in chapter 15, verse John, chapter 15, the book of John. Thank you. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and this is why the world hates you. And then we read this earlier this morning. Jesus is in chapter 17 now praying for his disciples and praying for us. And I want to close with this, this passage. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sancti them, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And again, you might not be called to end any of these systems of oppression and brokenness. And you might not, you know, we don't live in that part of the world you might not get dragged before the marketplace and locked up for your faith. But we're all called to drag folks out of those dark places and set them free. Right? We've been saved and we've been sanctified for that purpose. Right? We don't leave the prison and never look back. Right? We get freed and, and we immediately reach back and make sure that everyone else is saved. Would you bow your heads, Father? You never said it would be easy, but you made it super, super, super clear that you have defeated the uneasy.
You have defeated places where there is no common ground. So, Father, we, we stand on that. So, Father, is that, that that song we sang earlier? Give us the courage to step out on the water. Dangerous and scary. But, Father, a broken and lost and tricked world needs somebody to step out. Father, give us courage. Give us courage individually. Give us courage as a church to discern what's right and what's wrong. And just as importantly, how do, how do we respond so that the world looks at us and says, yeah, that's, that's the way. That's the way it should be done. That's beautiful. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for what he's doing in this church, one person at a time. Thank you, Father. Your son's name we pray.